This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tell Me This. I am your co-host, Carrie Borkowski, here with my co-host, Danielle Scarana. We got we to figure out how to liven up that intro, Danielle. I think, um, I don't know, we'll have to think about how to how to play that. I don't, I, I tend to disagree. I think that we liven up just our sheer presence okay. livens up this conversation. So. Okay. I didn't know if we should like switch it up for the audience or not. So we'll go with it for a while and see. So yeah. um, as you may have gathered from listening to our voices, Danielle and I are pretty keyed up right now. And that's probably completely related to hundred percent related to the guests that you're about to listen to us have this wonderful conversation. And we are I mean, really excited, right? Is it's beyond. Um, Miss Iko Bathia joined us for a hour-long conversation, and if you don't know this person, please Google her. She has wonderful articles. She's been on podcasts. She's been on Brene Brown's podcast, and she is a leader, builder, and connector. She successfully navigated leadership roles in government philanthropic, nonprofit, and private sectors. And in each sector, sector, she created and served in inaugural roles to meet growing organizational needs. Ico is also an award-winning and highly sought-after equity consultant, executive coach, and speaker. She is founder of Rare Coaching and Consulting, a consulting practice focused on coaching leaders and organizations to remove barriers to inclusion. Her practice integrates operations, leadership coaching, and education strategies that yield measurable outcomes. Iko is also a senior director of the Daring Way and Dare to Lead communities of Brene Brown Education and Research Group. She oversees development and implementation of the overall strategy for the communities, as well as the specific diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging strategy and oversight of the global over a thousand member facilitator community. And you can um, check out all of her work and places she's written and on podcasts she's been on on rarecoaching.net. So please check that out. So, whew, Danielle, that was such an amazing conversation. I'd love to hear just just little snippets. We don't want to give it all away. What's like? What's your? What are you thinking now that we just spoke to this the to Ico? I as I said in the conversation as you'll probably hear, there is so much that I can immediately reflect on. And I know that in the next month, I'm probably going to be texting you, Carrie, and saying, remember when Iko said this, yeah. I learned this changed the way that I think about X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I, when we were in the conversation and when we were just talking, the two key pieces that I took away from this conversation was the way in which 
Aiko approached our conversation with listening, discernment, and just complete generosity. Mm. I even think that out, the way we approached the discussion was a little different. I think you, I, you, you'll notice that the two of us pause a lot more, create a little more space, and try to build upon the discernment that Aiko is modeling. Mm. And the other piece that I'll I'll say before I turn it over to you is... Obviously, when we're thinking about paradoxes, I have said in a lot of these conversations and in my own reflection about the interrelationship between self and community and paradoxical thinking. (laughs) And one of the things I wrote down as she was speaking was that it is so clear that we are never operating in our own silos. And in fact, that we need to be accountable and responsible, especially when it comes to building diversity, equity, and inclusion, and then understanding our humanity that we are, we're operating in this integration of relationships at its core. And to Mm -hmm. me, relationship is the key piece here. Those were my initial thoughts. What are you thinking right now? Well, I agree with you. I think, you know, this, this notion, when she talks about leadership, she talks about success looks different for different leaders emerging or well-developed. And so some of her work is around really defining what success is. And then that other piece around impact and this idea that, um, you know, leaders are able to um, impart a trustworthiness with individuals who don't have to trust that leader. And so I think that not only is she coaching and, you know, doing work around this with other individuals and groups, she embodies this, Uh right? Which I think is one of the most powerful pieces of this. I mean, we were on Zoom with her twice, right? For a half hour, the first time an hour. And I can just feel that presence. And she just embodies the work that she's doing. And I think that brings additional authenticity and credibility, which I really, that's really sitting with me. Um, And of course, it won't be any surprise to you, Danielle, or our listeners that the other piece that really resonated with me is in her Medium article that we talked about, as well as our conversation. She keeps coming back to learner. She was talking about was if you come into a space believing you're the knower, you've already shut down the conversation. Uh Just think about that for a second. If you walk into a space thinking you you know it whatever it is, right? The topic, the issue, the space, the people, you've closed down any possibility for conversation. So just the mere act of shifting from knowing, and I know Brene, we quote Brene Brown all the time, right? It's like being right versus getting it right. If you walk Mm -hmm. into a space wanting to get it right, you know, I just feel like if you hold that learner identity, I feel like what I go, what I was hearing from Iko is that if we can hold that learning identity, other things can be cultivated as well. Cause it's sort of just a trickle effect, right? Like if you come with a learning identity, you're curious, you're asking questions. Um, you know, you're, you're willing to lean in, you're willing to admit failure. You're willing, right? Like I just think that. So if there was one big takeaway, I hope our listeners were he- will hear is around that learning identity. And the other I thing to I add oh, to that, really yeah, quickly, please. Is, and I and I just had the language pop into my mind before the conversation when I had read the medium article. The learner mindset was something that I definitely um, internalized, and I kept thinking to myself, "Well, now 
what do we do with this? What's the action here? Mm. Okay, you're embodying this learner mindset. What's the action you have to take? What's the action? Mm-hmm. And then what just popped in my mind, and as I'm I'm thinking about reflecting, the learner mindset is the action. Yeah. And so that to me, I think is so powerful. And it connects, as you said, to curiosity, how we reshape our values, how we operationalize and behave values, how do we interact relationally with others. So yeah. I'll just say one more time, the learning mindset is the action. Absolutely. The other takeaway. Yeah. And the other takeaway I had, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. And I know listeners and my students and colleagues have heard me talk about, um, and I actually said it in a presentation that I gave last summer was that we can have, I always talk about how we can have rigor and excellence and kindness like that. And this is particularly in the education space, right? Like that you don't have to be mean to your student and like say something harsh in feedback to demand rigor and excellence. You can be kind. And what it remind me of is that when Iko was talking about curiosity and how curiosity can show up in different ways. And so what she said was this idea around, you know, being kind and holding people accountable that you can be curious and there can be multiple narratives. And if I walk into a room curious as a learner and I use a term that is not the appropriate term to use, you know, evokes, you know, harsh feelings and et cetera, that you, Danielle, owe it to our space, our container to hold me accountable. But that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you berate me, right? And shame me. You can be kind about it and hold me to account. And I just loved that scenario that she played out um, because it, it just made it really clear for me. So, so yeah, so I think embracing that learner identity and as a learner, you know, preparing and expecting to receive, to to have accountability um, and for, to be able to receive it and, and have it delivered in in kind ways were really my, my takeaways. So the one, the one thing I'll say about kindness, um, I think we talk about language in the episode and speaking of language, there's a tendency, and maybe I may be generalizing this, but sometimes when I think about kindness, I think of being nice. And mm-hmm. kindness is not synonymous with being nice. Kindness mm-hmm. can be approaching with generosity. And so yes. I just thought I would add that piece. I think that's so important is the accountability, the responsibility, and the generosity as yeah. Iko talks about. Yeah. And I think Iko actually uses the term generosity, generous mm-hmm. versus kind. Um, it just made me think of the rigor and kindness that we, I talk about in terms of paradox. So, yeah. So anyway, dear listeners, I think you are in for a treat. It was a wonderful conversation. Um, so enjoy. And Danielle, it was a pleasure as always to be a part of that conversation with you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Enjoy everybody. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tell Me This. I am your co-host, Kara Borkowski, here with Danielle Scarano. Hello, Danielle. Good morning. Yeah, and I woo, I am excited, nervous, all sorts of things to introduce our, our next guest, uh, Ms. Aiko Bathia. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, and yeah. I am so excited to be here with you all. 
Oh, thank you so much. We're just we're just so thrilled to have you. So um, as we, we talked about all of your amazing accomplishments in the intro and you just sent us this morning, which I'm really excited about, we're going to hopefully dig in a little bit to an article you wrote working with Black Equity Consultants 101, or maybe this is AP level for some. So I know some of the themes in that article, I think, will touch really nicely with some of what we're going to talk about today. So as we get started, um, we, as our as our audience knows, we're going to talk about you know paradox and multiple narratives and sort of the role that that has potentially in leadership as well as um, diversity, equity, inclusion work, and and my interest in particular in cultivating belonging. And so, Iko, as we get started, what I'd really love to do and start with is you know anybody who reads your work, listens to the all the podcasts you've been on, goes to your website, you know you're described as um, a thought leader, a builder, a learner, and a thought partner. You've, I, I didn't know this about you, but it's amazing. You, um, you helped in the first organization to develop a, a DEI, a DEI strategy. That was the first organization-wide DEI strategy at the uh, Fred Hutch Cancer Research Organization. You developed the first diversity and inclusion department at this same organization. You're now doing um, some coaching of leaders at the executive level, emerging leaders, and so I guess the question I have for you is when you think about that word leader and leadership, what does that mean when you're when you're talking about that and, and supporting others in their journey in that in that realm? So usually when I'm thinking about what a leader or who a leader is, it's often somebody who is able to influence others without authority mm-hmm. and influence systems, influence processes, influence individuals. And usually what it takes to be able to do that is credibility and trust, which means that you're also able to create credibility and trust with people who are maybe outside of your identity demographic, maybe uh, colleagues, peers, or leaders who are above you. And I think that it's really such a mark of a leader when they are able to garner credibility and trust with people who are not beholden to them in terms of the hierarchy Mm. or positionality, but especially when it's people who are from completely different cultural backgrounds as well. Yeah. It's just such a heightened um, level of, of, um, I think, emotional intelligence. And a lot of what means that uh, what it takes for you to get there is having a learner mindset too. Yes. And we're going to definitely, you, you mentioned that in that article as well. I'm curious just to dig in a little bit. I loved this phrase that um, is on your website when you're talking about the process of coaching leaders. My interpretation was you're acknowledging that these leaders are coming to you already knowing what success looks like for their organization. Um, Because you say, you know what success is and sort of now what we want to do with this work is help you to develop impact as a leader. And so can you help our audience and myself understand those two words, success and impact? So I think that success looks different for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And even in the coaching relationship, some of the work is being much more succinct about what success means to them. So yes, they know that they want to make something better in order to be successful. But I will say that part of the coaching relationship is how do you define and articulate what success is and how do you know when you get there? Got it. I love how you're using words like trust and credibility, success and impact. And I wanted to circle back to trust and credibility. I, you know, I was in, you know, we've talked a little bit about our background to you, Iko. And, um, you know, just to remind our listeners, they know, but I was in 
Carrie's Leadership and Educational Organizations course in 2019, the summer of 2019. And we see these words come up a lot in the literature. And I'm wondering how you define an upper operationalized trust and credibility. Let me tell you what I think that some of the litmus test for this is yeah. for trust or credibility. And I think actually it directly connects with that line item I just mentioned about leadership is that people are willing to be influenced by you, mm. even though they are not required to. It's voluntary. So I think that's what it looks like. So what it takes for people to trust others, um, it looks a lot of, uh, it requires different things for different people, I would say. Uh, I know that Brene has a great uh, seven um, word acronym for uh, for this, which is braving in the seven elements of trust. And on top of that, I think that, uh, you know, when I'm usually looking at the lens of this work, I'm thinking about when somebody is willing to voluntarily be influenced by you and they're so not like you, they have no reason, no obligation to follow you. That's when I'm starting to unpack, well, what did it take for them to get there? And then for those folks are within that organization, I'm, I'm able to unpack what was important for them to actually lean in and trust X individual or even organization. And oftentimes it's hand in hand though. Credibility is always with that. Mm. But I don't know if that specifically answered your question, because I don't think for me, at least what I've seen is that there's not necessarily always a formula. Even if you, if people are saying the same words, it looks different in action. Mm. Mm. Yeah. One thing we, we love to do, like, and I think that's why partly uh, Danielle's asking is, you know, and you know, this, our audience is listening and trust is sort of this, we sort of know it when we see it, but yet it's still ambiguous. So trying to sort of put some, I don't know, meat yeah. on the bones of that word if we can. So I don't know if you can share, you said it's different in different situations. Can you share maybe an example just to help us conceptualize that? Yeah. Let me tell you what some of the common factors are then that mm -hmm. I noticed, but there's always these different twists that happen where <laughs> yeah. we look at context, but I know that you all already know that. So <laughs> one thing is um, that you do what you say you're going to do, mm. right? Um, I'm following up with my commitment. I said I was going to do, and I'm going to do it. Another part is integrity. And that looks like doing and saying the things that might even be hard and difficult. They may be difficult for you and they also might be difficult for the crowd or individual who you have to deliver this news to or whomever, but you're doing it anyway, even though it's hard. Mm. Um, what we do know about credibility, though, is that uh, a lot of times people think that folks follow leaders because I like you, you're nice to me. But what we do know is that credibility increases based on the leader's integrity. So willingness to do the hard things. So if I told you every day, Danielle, you're great, you're a rock star, you're awesome. That's not going to garner more trust between you and I than when I say, hey, Danielle, we had this hard conversation we need to have, but I've got to give you this feedback. Mm -hmm. And I need to give it to you for you know your own performance, your own growth. And also it's important for you to know this. Mm -hmm. You're going to trust me more in terms of having that hard conversation with you that's transparent and honest than me just telling you how great you are every day. Mm -hmm. So the integrity factor is really important. And I, with coaching clients, uh, especially clients who end up being, who are wired to be people pleasers and to accommodate others for a lot of reasons. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. 
when they hear that, they understand they're more motivated to lean into the difficult conversation because sometimes you don't do it because you want people to like you. But then when you realize actually what folks are going to appreciate from you is your ability to deliver the difficult news. Yeah. yeah. I hope that was an example. That, that was, want. that was, that was great. I go. Yeah. When you were speaking, it's so funny that you said the people pleasers, because I was thinking, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves and those saboteurs, right. That we want to please people. And in fact, it's that that's actually not the motivation it should be to to really lean into those conversations. And so, yeah, I appreciate that. That that helps a lot to get put some um, concreteness to it. So thank you for that. Yeah, I was just thinking um, you had mentioned Brene's acronym of breathing. The clearest kind is actually a post-it mm. note in my office because I have I am that people please the wired people pleaser. And I had to really dig into it and say people aren't going to appreciate people under me. The people next to me aren't going to appreciate the fluff and the, oh, great, but what is the real feedback that's going to make them work more, work better, improve the quality of the organization? So I appreciate you talking about that. that that's right. You know, if you think about some of the real world examples that happen, so yeah. an org is about to be acquired, or we know that the, a huge reorg is going to happen, or maybe the numbers don't look so great. It causes more anxiety and distrust in the organization <laughs> when no one actually speaks to what folks suspect. And even if the narrative is wrong, but mm-hmm. then when you lean in and say, hey, folks, this is where we're at right now in this moment of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. How can we all actually mitigate impact or detriment or what have you? Folks appreciate, one, the transparency. Two, you invited them in in order to weigh in and to problem solve. Three, you empowered and trusted them to make decisions for themselves that are best. Mm-hmm. How does that show up with cultivating diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging in organizations that you're working with? So the reason I think I'm having a long pause is that I don't see them as separate things. It's the the same thing that is going to cause distrust for any person is going to cause distrust for other folks who might be people of color, might be folks who identify as LGBT+, disabled, whatever. If you see that and you sense that someone's hiding the ball, you're going to trust them less. Now, the difference might be if an organization already has a track record of not being so great with any of these different demographic groups or communities or what have you, you're going to have to over-communicate and show up even uh, with more integrity, I would say, and Mm -hmm. in doing what you say you're going to do and being more mindful of it. And honestly, quite frankly, even if the organization or the individual doesn't have that history, you have to understand that people who find themselves as the onlys in these different spaces or the ones who have uh, traditionally been discriminated against or treated inequitably, it will take, it is fair to expect that it might take more of you to show up in this way that's consistent, worthy of credibility and trust. So this conversation is um, a really nice sort of precursor or segue into some of the topics that we want to dig into, Iko and Danielle. And I'm thinking about this notion of paradox. And Iko, I said to you before we started the recording that I wish we had recorded our, our pre-meeting. We had floated this, you know, Marion Webster sort of textbook definition of paradox and this idea around seeming seemingly conflicting ideas. And um we what we really wanted to share and be transparent with our audiences. You called us to task on that, and would love for the audience to hear sort of your reaction and, and explanation of that that phrase, seemingly conflicting ideas. 
Thanks, Carrie. So thinking back, I'm remembering what I what I was thinking. Um, and one is what the way that you posed or defined paradox itself with the presumption that there's already tension and opposition versus recognizing that there are always multiple narratives, period, existing at the same time. I do want to add something in the sense that multiple narratives don't always mean that they're in conflict with each other mm -hmm. or that there has to be tension. The tension might just be, it's the first time the person who's presenting the idea realizes and recognizes these other narratives even exist. And they're first being introduced to them. So when they're introduced in something to something that is different and doesn't have its place in the conversation by default, it can feel like it's in opposition to. And it can also feel like there's a tension versus let me stop, take a beat and think about what does this mean and how does this connect? I think that nine times out of 10, you're always going to see there's connection points. You'll see the interrelatedness as well. And often you'll be able to see the leverage points for, for the other perspectives that are coming up as well. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, I go, and, and this might be too like existential of a question maybe, but I'm curious, like, Given what you said, and I and, you know, Danielle and I have talked about this, that sort of conversation really did have ripple effects for us. And we're really taking that to heart. And 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 for our audience who's been listening along, you'll see sort of the language we've started to use and that change because of that conversation. But I guess the question I have for you is with that in mind, what does that mean for a word or like the idea of paradox as we know it? Right. Are, are you is there a suggestion that we shouldn't focus on the conflict. I'm just wondering if you have a thought on that. I know that's kind of a random question, but I'm just curious. So my first thought when you just now asked me was that, you know, words have their purpose in a point in time. Mm. It doesn't mean they always say like, we look at the word of the year last year was they, them, mm. right? Totally yeah. turn everything on its head yeah. and for, for good reason. Mm -hmm. So I think that if you just understand the context and the place and time, mm -hmm. you can apply language appropriately, but you have to still be open to that word being redefined mm -hmm. or recognize that the new context around that word, new timing, new culture may deem that word irrelevant yeah. or maybe even sometimes old language that was okay becomes taboo for good reason. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so language always evolves. But I do think that even when you're thinking about um, new ideas or if somebody introduces a word, it still makes me stop and think, why am I having this response to this word? But what uh -huh. I'm not going to do is take it for face value as the end all be all. Uh -huh. so even you all introducing and telling me what paradox means to you all and made me stop and pause and think about, I can't respond to this because it has this assumption or this premise that I don't think I necessarily agree with. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciated that. Honestly, that was great. Yeah. I, and again, to reiterate, I mean, it is one thing that we have learned so much from you and I'm curious to see how the audience starts to conceptualize this as well. One of the areas of paradox that my, that I myself are dig is digging into is this idea of paradox, the interrelationship between the paradox of self and how it translates to the community. So in our prior discussion last month, I had used the example of the paradox of reinvention and reinvention is the paradox at my core that I feel like I bleed through my bones and my muscles. And 
I had initially conceptualized the idea of reinvention as shedding and rebuilding. And again, you challenged me to think that it's much more fluid than that. It's reformulating, it's morphing. And I remember I wrote this down in my journal after we had spoken and you said, you're not taking away, you're evolving. You're, because if you are taking away, you're erasing parts of your being and your identity. And then on a community level, think about the sheer danger in destructing the identities of people if you are seeking to reinvent. So from a community perspective and for a DEI perspective, as you're going in as a DEI consultant and you're asking perhaps organizations to reinvent or to think about how they're approaching equity in their organization, how might you approach that lens um, at a community perspective? Okay, so starting just from the community perspective, I want to be clear that no one gets to redefine or reinvent a community except the community itself. Mm. So that's just ground level 101. But we know that based on power dynamics or efforts to do otherwise, even if it is to characterize communities in such a way and to define their current state and their future state, you've already started at an incorrect place when you've even defined current state because you're not a part of that community. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I do want to, that all has to do with, you know, who, who gets to say and whose voice matters and who doesn't and why. So that's just the whole issue of equity period. Mm-hmm. The other part, I want to go back to your initial question, which was about um, reinvention and what does that mean? So just even in the language that I was using um, about current state, like I cannot assess an organization's current state just by coming in in that moment. So that's why even when I'm considering what's feasible for them and the best path forward to become whatever they want to become, I'm actually not only thinking about what's happened right now, I'm asking people about history, context, when was the last reorg, what are all these other things that are happening because it goes back to where we started from, which is about credibility and trust. You can't move people into a future together about a new um, identity who we're going to become. If you have not honored what their experience has already been, you're not recognizing it. You're not naming it and acknowledging it. A lot of folks like to come in. This is where we are now. I don't want to talk about all the bad stuff and in the past. And this is where we want to go. Guess what? You need to start from understanding what got you here in this place that you don't want to be in. And you have to actually acknowledge and open and learn about the multiple narratives that you don't even know about yet. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to take the time to learn that and understand that you don't have any credibility with me, right? Not me as a consultant, but me even as the employee or what have you. And it's, it is not um, ideal or appropriate for me to move forward if you don't even know what your current state is and why it's there. You just want to be this new shiny thing that may be really out of your reach until 20 steps in between. So part of even coming into an organization is understanding the anecdotes, understanding the experiences, understanding the narratives, understanding what has actually operationally even happened that's caused harm. Mm -hmm. What is the origin story of an organization? So we hear this a lot in philanthropy where philanthropy wants to all of a sudden become this equitable shared power type of dynamic, but you've never even named the origin of your money and where it came from and at what cost and at whose expense. Mm -hmm. Until you can name that and even own that part of your story and recognize this is how you got here. I can't really help you to get there Mm -hmm. because every, everyone rightly so should be asking, but 
what about blah, 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 and all this place where this money came from and on whose backs and blah, blah. That even changes the conversation later. So are you still a charitable organization and philanthropic organization? Are you in the business of reparations? Changes the whole thing once I, we start understanding that. I feel like I'm going all the way left, but I want to show how all of these things yeah. connect together. And I do want to say we're talking about this in the context of diversity, equity, inclusion, but I want to say this is every leader's journey. Yeah. This is agnostic of diversity, equity, inclusion. If you want to be a strong leader, it takes the exact same competencies as it takes to be, I'm doing air quotes here, good at diversity, equity, inclusion, because what we know, what is required of a competent leader is that they have self-awareness is that they have emotional intelligence and emotional intelligence is the same thing, but it looks different. Mm -hmm. And now you're required to have a more expansive breadth and depth of emotional intelligence before you could completely be successful with just the folks in the room who looked like you and took the same um, path to get to where, where you all are in that shared room with shared perspectives and likely lived experiences. Mm -hmm. But now, because I think there's a degree of a recognition of the perspectives that have been excluded and the identities that have been excluded, you've got to shift. And even if we think about the global talent demographic composition, right? Mm -hmm. The folks you're going to be hiring look different, have different lived experiences as well. And we also know now that accountability happens beyond the four walls of your office. Because we've got social media, we've got consumers who are all up in there. Everybody knows how to go to your site and see who's in the decision-making seats and who's not. So your emotional intelligence as a leader needs to up its game. It needs to be more expansive and the depth needs to be much deeper as well. So you are still exercising the exact same skill set it requires to be a leader, period. Not to be a leader who's good at DEI, but to be a leader, period. Yeah. And it is the most transferable skill for any leader right now to up their game on emotional intelligence, which means that they need to understand the dynamics of diversity, equity, inclusion mm-hmm. within yeah. ex- internally and externally. So I really want to, I'm on this, uh, on this mission to make sure that when we were talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, people understand that it is a, it is inclusive of any leader. It is a component of being a leader, period. It is not the separate add-on component. It is a part of being and a necessary part of being a successful leader. Yeah. I mean, I think your, your medium article is a testament to that because if you, it's written in the context of thinking about equity, but even if you take some of the points that you make about adopting a learner, being a learner, learning to interrogate the system and yourself and um, leaning into hard conversations, knowing there's risk and uncertainty, those three strategies, every leader needs that for any hard conversation. And of course, for the DEI work. So I think if anybody were to read your medium article and there are lots of people reading it, you, this is useful in multiple situ- all situations as a, as a leader. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I go, um, I'm going to ask you a follow-up and it's, it's sort of like me to want to dig into sort of what does this look like in practice? I keep thinking, right. Mm-hmm. And, and part of me going back to what we're talking about here and also the trust and credibility is I have a sense I go, and maybe it's partly my, the educator in me knowing that I sort of have to do some preparation with my students and you, and you allude to it in the article, this idea of readiness, And in education, we talk a lot about a student's readiness to learn. 
And so I'm wondering what is the sort of like, what is the pre-work or that readiness? Like, what do those sort of steps look like to start? Cause you can't, I mean, look, I'm doing my work and I'm working hard. I'm a work in progress. And I still have very hard times having hard conversations that have lots of risk. So you can't just jump in. I don't think into those. Right. So I'm wondering like, what does the pre-work look like? And I know it's different for everybody, but can you give us a taste of what that warm up or pre-work or readiness might look like, if that makes sense as a question. Readiness to be a leader, or readiness to lean into difficult conversations, readiness for <laughs> all of it. You can pick, you can pick. <laughs> um, so one thing I want to be really clear about, somebody asked me a question yesterday, which was <clears throat> about the readiness of philanthropy to mm. shift. <clears throat> and one point I really wanted to make is that it is a point of privilege to be ready or not. Okay. And to not move forward until you're ready. Mm. It's a lot of privilege in that period. So really the question is, what are you willing to do to embark on becoming this moving from here to going there? Yeah. And so let's define what our going there is. If somebody said, I want to, I want to be a successful leader and a leader in a 21st century organization, which means that I'm going to engage with a lot of people with lots of different backgrounds and I want mm -hmm. them to trust me and to follow me. Yeah. So what needs to be, what does your readiness look like? So the readiness looks like the learner mindset, which I talk about all the time, mm -hmm. which means your willingness to accept and lean into the fact that you're not going to be right a lot of times and it's okay. Yeah. The fact that even before someone tells you you're not right, to understand that there's a possibility that you're not and to lean into your assumptions, your um, stealth intentions that you may have not ever unpacked and inviting other people to be um, hold up a mirror to you. Mm. And even when that mirror is held up to you to be able to see what they see and what they're experiencing and to believe them when they share this is what I experienced and then to think if this is true, then what does this mean that I need to do differently? And how do I do that? So that learner, when you are a learner, we know that traits of a learner include, first of all, knowing that you're going to get things wrong, because that's why I'm learning, right? Because I yeah. recognize I don't know everything. So yeah. I'm learning. And so I'm ready myself that I'm going to get mistakes. And that a lot of my assumptions and ideas about what I think I already know are going to be challenged and are going to shift and are going to evolve. And so that idea, whenever you're in a space where you know that you don't know everything, you're already in a space of uncertainty, right? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you've got to call me in and what I said is off. And all I can say is, wow, okay, let me think about that to figure out what were my assumptions to think that that was right and what's being jarred here or that I need to re-envision. Mm -hmm. And wow, I've never had that experience before. And yet- Somebody has, and that means that I have this, I have this assumption that nobody has these experiences and I need to get off of that block mm -hmm. and now retune what I thought and I assumed. So that learner mindset of always being at um, a point of uncertainty and readying yourself to hear a new narrative and to believe it, to uh, actually absorb it as well and to shift in response to it. The other part is seeking proactively new narratives are different ones that you are not mm -hmm. aware of. So it's not just always up to Danielle to come and say, Hey, Ico, this is what I need to tell you. Or I need to share, you know, that's great that Danielle will do that, but I need to also proactively be seeking being in different communities and saying, Danielle, I have this assumption. This is what I'm thinking. Tell me what your experience is and what you think. Mm -hmm. I'm inviting it all constantly. So my question is, 
is in the question. So as a leader, as you, as you think about leaders interacting with leaders, having hard conversations requires a lot of asking questions. And so how would you train a leader to ask good questions? Are all questions good questions or are there certain um, criteria or characteristics to certain questions that you should be, that I don't wanna say should, cause I hate using should, that you can ask to um, understand multiple narratives in that sense? Yeah, so I'm trained as a litigation attorney. Mm -hmm. So deposing people, it's a yes, no question. So it's a closed question oftentimes, at least in public, by the time we're asking the question in public. <laughs> but there's a lot of the preliminary questioning that happens that's not in public to make sure that do I even know what the answer is and what are all the other possibilities and what are the things that other people might be thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the idea of everything in the being open. If it's an open-ended question, but so that someone can actually have space to walk through that question. And even the way that you ask it. So if I come and mm -hmm. say, this is really simple here, but I just want to say, Danielle, isn't it such a great day? Don't you think it's a great day? I've already told you what I expect you to answer and what I expect you to say versus mm -hmm. having an open-ended response. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of that. There's the other part about, again, going back to emotional intelligence, who's in the room and understanding even the way that you're opening the conversation, the space in which you're having the conversation, even venue, all these things matter in terms of, is it creating an opportunity of an opening for honest answers and deep conversation? Or is it creating a closed environment where there is clearly a message because of the way that I'm asking you something and around whom? Mm. I would imagine going back to that, um, going into the, the room and, and creating that space for people to be open also connects to values. So how would that, um, as you think about values and asking questions and giving people the space and sort of, op in my mind, operationalize some of these values. So can you speak more about values and where that fits into the process? Yeah, so values um, set the norms for an organization, right? Mm -hmm. But it can't be just the word on the wall of curiosity. Mm -hmm. So it's values and what does curiosity look like? It doesn't look like just me cornering Carrie and asking her 50 questions <laughs> that are closed questions, right? Yeah. But it actually means curiosity. So the, the um, language that I have around curiosity means even being open to questioning that the impact of systems, processes, history, and time has on how someone's showing up or what's happening, the issue and dispute. So now my curiosity means that I can't just rely on just what Danielle said in front of me, but I'm thinking holistically. So that means if there is an issue that has to do with gender or race or what have you, it's not just me and that person in front of me, but I'm thinking about the years of history around race, race in America and in this company, you know, genderism, and I'm responsible for that. So the curiosity looks really different when you add that layer to it. And it also means that when we're going into meetings around here in this organization that has curiosity on the wall that says curiosity means also the consideration of history, time, processes, procedures, whatever. That means when we're in a meeting, people know that it's totally on the table for someone to say, yeah, but you know what? We can't ignore the fact of where our money came from. Mm. 
So let's go back there. No one's going to say, but that doesn't have anything to do with this. We're just talking about this issue, which is the starting point that many people want to have. When you have curiosity that's defined that way, that means everything's on the table, Mm. right? And no one can be able to answer all of those questions or understand all that context, which means that it's going to take all of our brain power and consideration to be open. But it does set the tone for the room. So what if curiosity is just defined as we ask questions to get answers? Totally different experience in that room. Mm -hmm. Someone will shut it down before you can say, where does the money come from in the history around the money? Because it's like, that doesn't answer this question that's on the table. So that's a closed space and environment that's not going to open up for the type of curiosity that I'm talking about and the need for the introspection, which is like, when we're talking about transformational answers versus transactional and checking mm-hmm. box, and we got this done. Yeah. Same value, defined totally differently on the wall. And that's why you have to have the behaviors associated with each value and not just words on there because now you're setting the tone. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I, I, I have to be, I'm going to be honest because I, I love this conversation and feel like I, I can be honest with both of you. I'm, I'm still thinking about this readiness idea, Iko, and I hear what you're saying that readiness is a privilege. I, I, I heard that you said that. And the things that I am wondering about and, and I worry about is, um, and perhaps we see this, I guess, you know, I don't watch the news, but when I do catch glimpses of it or I read an article, I've been hearing a lot about you know, all the conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion, and, you know, people are talking about critical race theory in correct ways and incorrect ways in, a, in public discourse, right? And so if, we, if we're thinking about this conversation and we're saying there are multiple narratives, everything's on the table, what I wonder about and, and want to sort of help under, you know, create, I want to create spaces where everyone feels like they can be in that space safely. And I know that word safety is a, is a tricky word, but I guess what I'm saying is like, how do you, how is everything on the table and how are there multiple narratives and how do you have these hard conversations if there's a chance that someone could be harmed by the word somebody says, does that, does that make sense? Those are the things I'm grappling with right now. No, that's great. And it makes perfect sense. And a couple of things, because that word is really important and it's going to help me to answer. Okay. It's about safety. Okay. And I think you already know about why people do and don't, but the, for the, um, or use that word. And just for the, um, for the benefit of our audience, I just want to talk a little bit about the word safety and why we use, instead of safety, we use brave space and that concept Mm -hmm. about being brave. And this is by, I wish I could remember the two professors, but it came out of the idea of brave space is coined out of um, professors teaching social justice work Mm -hmm. and recognizing that when you use the term safety, it means that um, it's always going to center a certain person's safety. Yeah. Right. So especially with social justice work, it might end up centering um, the norm of whiteness and power as we see it now. And it should be disrupting it. Mm-hmm. And it actually closes a conversation and puts things off the table. So instead, and also what causes people to feel safe is when they're, when they're not at risk, when yeah. there's not emotional exposure, when there's not uncertainty. But when we know just by the nature of talking about these topics like race and especially in America, that, that vulnerability is always on the table in terms of 
risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we say brave space because brave space challenges you to lean into that discomfort, to expect it and to be open to it. Mm -hmm. So going back to your question about readiness, the readiness, if you've created this brave space, that means that we already know there's Mm discomfort, there's uncertainty, there's risk. I don't even like using the word discomfort because I actually think that that um, diminishes what oft, often is happening, which is there's actually pain in the room. Yeah, That's a totally different ball game than discomfort. There is pain in the room. And not only from people who um, the harm has been imposed upon, but for many people who have to look at the impact of their identity on other people, even though they're not the ones who are flagrantly wielding power over people, mm-hmm. but it's painful. So if we go from there, what we're saying is that, so to have that brave space, to be able to open a container in that way, Mm -hmm. to invite this, what is important when you're talking about harm, because you're right, there can be harm done when somebody uses the wrong word, has an assumption, it's being introduced to a new narrative they never knew about. Mm -hmm. But what has to be coupled with or expected in that space is accountability. Mm -hmm. When I talk about accountability, I mean accountability with generosity. You can hold people accountable and do it in a generous way. So say, Carrie, you said something and you use this word that's a really explosive word that you didn't know, mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. I'm in the room and I have to say, Carrie, there's something I need to share with you. And I'm not going to say, Carrie, you're terrible. You blah, blah, blah. In the moment, you know, I'm going to say, but I need you to hear this. Mm-hmm. And your role in this learner mindset, mm-hmm. I'm open I could have said something wrong. There's a possibility. I know that other narratives exist. Okay, Aiko, I hear what you're saying. And I am able to explain it to you. I'm doing it in generosity with the presumption that you're going to be in a learner mindset, that this Mm. is a brave space. Mm. So it is with accountability and generosity. Readiness doesn't mean you're going to get it right. And you're totally, you know, equipped and you know, all the things and the right words and blah, blah, blah. Mm. It means I'm going into it prepared to be brave. Mm. Part of being brave is knowing also being willing and open to be held accountable, right? Yeah. But our job also is to be accountable with generosity. And that's something that is challenging to do also, right? Yeah. But if we have, if we have grace and we have empathy, that kind of has to happen on both sides as well, but we know it's not always going to happen, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have resilience where you get back up, you dust yourself off, you get back into the game, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad we're having this conversation, Iko, because you've really helped me clarify, I think, the question that I was getting at, but wasn't asking in the way that made sense, which was, I don't think I cared as much about readiness as much about cultivating those brave spaces. That's I think that's what I was refer, referring to. And so, um, yeah, so I, I appreciate that clarification. That's super helpful. I have a question as you're talking about brave spaces, and, and this might be something I need to clarify a question that I have you, when you're talking about brave spaces, my mind automatically goes to community level work and group work. And in the learning process, it's this interdisciplinary, or maybe not interdisciplinary, but interrelationship between self-work and community work. And what is it, how do you ensure that people are staying accountable doing the work on their own so that they are showing up in these brave spaces as vulnerable emotionally intelligent people willing to <laughs> hold people accountability accountable with generosity. You know, I have 
<clears throat> being kind of torn about how far you can go in transformation understanding by yourself. Mm. So um, me and um, I was working with somebody, Martin Shorta, who works with uh, fearless organizations and is part of Amy Edmondson's um, body of work about psychological safety too, mm -hmm. and recognizing that there are these tiers to have greatest impact around psychological safety. Um, but I just wanted to give him credit to you as we started having these conversations. But one of the things we're thinking about was this concept about within, between, and among for impact. So part of the work is the work you're doing with yourself within internally. There's also the work becomes stronger when you're doing it between folks in this more of a, um, still a microcosm, but then what do you take out into community? But it's multi-level and I don't know if you can get the multi-level dimensional, you know, impact without having each of those. I don't know if I could be in a room just reading, which a lot of people did these last few years. I'm going to get every book and read all of them. We saw that by based on the New York Times bestseller list. But what are you really getting out of this? Mm -hmm. And how much are you really learning? Like this is relational work, mm -hmm. you know, but you definitely have to do the within part to understand what's your even baseline but it's the rigor in engaging with other people and with community where the rubber meets the road, where you really start seeing all of these intersections and variables and history and context that you may not have known or been aware of before. So I'm wondering, going back to these brave spaces. So if I walk into a classroom, an organization, a boardroom into this container, this brave space, how will I know it's a brave space? Well, I don't know if you, there are ways that you can have some assurances, which is like coming in and setting the container. Mm. What are our norms and what are our agreements? There's some okay. things I need to know are off the table or some, something that's going on here. Yeah. It, kinda, it, it helps to always reset and define the space okay. to align with what are you trying to accomplish here? Okay. Okay. I guess the other question I have, and I know where I want to be, um, you know, we're winding down here. I'm curious uh, some of the research I do is around belonging in, in classrooms and online spaces. I'm wondering when we think about the conversation we've had, these multiple narratives, you know, um, difficult conversations and creating these brave spaces, I go, what do you think the impact on organizations and groups that take on this kind of work? What do you think the impact is on things like belonging and, um, you know, Brene Brown talks about wholeheartedness and Palmer, Palmer, Parker Palmer talks about the undivided life. So I'm just wondering, what do you think the impact is on, on having those brave spaces available to individuals with respect to belonging and things of that nature? Are you saying having these brave spaces present in the workplace? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. I think yeah. that that actually helps for people to not have to compartmentalize. Mm. Right. And you're not, and what it means is that um, usually there's already default culture in spaces, Western world spaces. Um, mm. That means that some behaviors and some things belong. We saw that with the public conversation about what's professionalism, even around mm. black hair. So in brave spaces, it allows and invites permission for people to provide a counter narrative and it be validated and multiple narratives to come into a space. So I think that um, hopefully one of the outcomes should be that there's less code switching, assimilation, mm. covering that folks ha are expected to do, yeah. or at least there's some accountability around it that this is, if this is what you expect me to do, have straight hair or to, um, 
identify as one, you know, one gender, one whatever, then I want you to know what that impact is on me. Because now I've had space to say that narrative mm-hmm. in a way that's been invited because of brave space. Yeah, great. Thank you. Danielle, any last com- uh, questions before we wrap? My my head of just is just, I mean, I go, I, I wish if, if I could have my wish, it would say that we would meet with you like every month to just get into these topics. <laughs> you say this to all your speakers. There's just, again, like going back to our conversation last month <laughs> to now, my head is just, I know I'm going to get off and then I have notes on my, my notebook papers. Oh, I wish I would have asked her that question or, um, but you, you, you did talk about values. You talked about multiple narratives. Um, there were some other notes I had from last time. I just, how do leaders certainly tackle the hardest issues? And what's the, I think the hope that you have as we move forward in this work, got to it. I think I'm stuck on hardest issues, like hardest according to whom? Like, why are they the hardest issues? Mm. I would say perhaps it's as we're continuing, you talked about the interrogation of systems and every organization is entrenched and you can correct, I would say that they're in every organization, every part of facet of society, we have power structures, we have historical power over. And what I keep wrestling with and thinking about is I'm a leader in a space right now who perhaps has worked in myself done the work in terms of incorporating this power with and creating these brave spaces, but I'm coming into a culture of an organization that has a historic systemic cultural way of it that it's power over all the time. And so I think what I keep getting stuck with is moving from a power over to a power with and, and how do I move forward? And yeah, so I would, I think what comes to me are it's two things. One is you can extend an invitation to the organization mm-hmm. to have a mirror held up to itself. And the other part is, and this isn't either or at all, but I'm just thinking about these other um, approaches. The other one is that um, no, every organization and every community and space or what have you doesn't have historic power over dynamics. Some actually have always had power with and collaborative models and dynamics. Mm -hmm. So the other part is introducing those options into the system Mm -hmm. and places where it might become either might garner the greatest return on investment. And part, and again, it's this moment that happens that I haven't fully figured out how to express it to people or how to define it. But there's a moment that happens when you realize, oh shit, these other multiple narratives exist that I had no idea existed. And what does this mean? Mm-hmm. What does this mean to systems? What does it mean to my um, understanding of history? What does this mean, mean to the assumptions I've made and how I show up? But the introduction of other ways that things have been done and even the possibility of how they could be done. I mean, that's really powerful because now whatever the system or whatever the um, power holders or decision makers have, they now have choice. Mm-hmm. Right now they may not even see that there's choice. Hmm. Or they may feel like there's choice, but I haven't figured out what it is, or I haven't basically had the emotional or mental capacity to figure out what choice is, or I don't have the um, vulnerability or the bravery to, to, to introduce other choice, you know, or other ways. So there's extending the invitation and there's a way of also being able to educate and share other ways that might be more about power sharing, mm-hmm. collaborative, or just at least understanding the harm of certain models of power over. 
Mm-hmm. So I think those are, are some of the other options that are there. And there are also ways that, you know, the system gets really disrupted when yeah. people demand different, like mm-hmm. social media is real. Clients boycott, stop buying. Folks are, you know, nobody wants to be on the front page. So there's a lot of other accountability measures that do happen that you can educate and actually say these are ways to mitigate or what have you. Mm-hmm. But those are some of the other, you know, other ways. I do, I do think we didn't talk about this, but I do want to say that imagination is such an important part of this work. Mm-hmm. So knowing that there's all these possibilities we don't even know of. And again, How do you embrace that and walk in the possibility of things that you've never seen or know exist? Mm -hmm. So having a learner mindset and being open, because if we think about black people in the U S who are specifically descendants of slaves for us to think and believe there's another way where we have joy in our thriving and free in our bodies and spaces, we've got to imagine that. Mm -hmm. So other people need to be invited to imagine also what it looks like because it requires them to also shift Mm. for that other idea of joy and freedom and thriving to happen for many of us. Mm. Imagination is really, really important. And then you can see why you can't go forward with like this command and control or I have, and I know all the answers and being a knower right there, it closes off so many people's viability really. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I think that's such a beautiful way to, to bring us to a close here. And, and Ica, we always like to ask our, um, our guests at the end, if there's, you know, anything else, you know, that we didn't cover, we didn't ask you about that you want to share with the audience before we, before we close this down. There is one thing, and it actually goes so well into that segue. Oh, awesome. Is this idea of imagining a different way in life where it's not um, compounded by so much of the trauma of many of our lives and that we deal with every day is that I am writing a book. It's not one of my nonfiction books or work related, but it is a book that is a cozy comfort book. Mm -hmm. So if you're not familiar with that genre, think Murder, She Wrote Mm. and Planetary. And those books actually got me through COVID. But the Uh one thing I didn't appreciate is that there weren't black female protagonists are many of them. And so the series I'm writing, it's a black female protagonist and she redefines what success looks like in her life. She speaks to a lot of the issues that she um, encounter that we encounter. It elevates the way that we live life in little pockets of joy and possibility. Mm-hmm. And I love it. And I hope that, I mean, it's fun. I hope that people read it and fall in love with the character Tamika Robinson. And I hope that they fall in love with being able to see people existing in different ways that they may not have seen. Oh, well, when, when can we expect, April, when can we expect April 20 this? Oh, April 22nd. Yeah, Look at April 2022. Yeah. Danielle's yeah. just on it. Man. She is on it. Well, well we don't, we don't want to uh, put you in a tight spot, Ica, but maybe you could come back in late spring and talk to us about one that, that book. That would be awesome. I would love to, but it's not, it'll, it'll have to be more uh, probably attractive to your creative writing professors and academia versus yeah (laughs) that's okay that's okay so well look having me oh my gosh thank you from the bottom of our hearts for taking the time out you had a pre-meeting with us doing the recording it's just been wonderful and I continue to learn and love to lean in and listen to all of your I mean I read your articles your podcast and just it really just please know that the work you are doing 
has tremendous ripple effects. And I am, I am a testament (laughs) that you're helping to, you know, helping me to reframe and really think uh, about these important topics. So I go really, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right, everybody. This has been another episode of tell me this. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.